Well, amen. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Were you inspired by last week's youth service? Wasn't it amazing? I'm so proud of our youth, just the way you guys are growing in the faith and how you shared with us. Um, and I know I speak on behalf of the church. I am, we are super inspired and encouraged by you guys. So thanks so much. You know, shortly after Sunday, I had this picture. I had this vision that we're going to have a marriage-led service in church. Wouldn't that be awesome, right? And, and that, come on. And that the worship will be led by married folk. Come on. Me excluded. Um, and uh, I'll encourage some of the married couples to share how God is using their spouse to help them become more like Jesus. Amen. If you're married and you don't experience that, then there's a bit more to marriage than you might think. But amen. So please be praying for that. Watch the space. Uh, but that is going to happen and hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, now, so today we are back in the, in the series on Book of Acts. Uh, we have been in the series for a while and as you can gather from the part number that we are in lesson 20 and just starting chapter 7, this will continue for a while still. Now in the past two lessons that covered Acts chapter 6, we were introduced to this amazing disciple called Stephen. We saw that Stephen was one of the seven men in the church who were elected to set up a system, a fair system to make sure that all the Jewish widows in the church were properly properly looked after uh, through the distribution of food. And these seven men are described as men of good reputation uh, men who were full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And then later on in chapter 6, we saw how Stephen is referred to as being full of grace and power. He is an amazing disciple and he's become one of the heroes of the faith to me. And today we're going to continue looking at Stephen. And in fact, Stephen is only mentioned in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Um, all we know about Stephen is what comes from those two chapters. But he is truly an inspiring Disciple, and we can imitate him uh, in many ways. But also in chapter 6, we, we saw two weeks ago how Stephen was debating with a group of, of Jews, and they were amazed by his wisdom. And they couldn't argue effectively with what he was presenting, how he presented the gospel. How did they respond? Did they respond with great humility and say, Stephen, that's awesome. What you say is true. Were they cut to the heart and say, you know, Stephen, what shall, what shall we do? No, not at all. That's an Acts 2.37 response. We do not see that amongst the Jews here. Instead, they responded with a strategy that's become known, an argumentative strategy that's become known as ad hominem. Okay, that's the, that's the Latin word. Maybe the, the lawyers here will understand a bit more than, than I do about that. But effectively, what, when you adopt that strategy, you, you no longer debate the topic, you start playing the man. If you can't play the ball properly, play the man. So they were completely out-debated by Stephen, and they started playing the man. What they did was they accused him of blasphemy. And remember these four things. They accused him of blasphemy, in other words, speaking badly about Moses, God, the temple, and the law. And they dragged him before the Sanhedrin, where he faced these charges and he needed to give a defense. He had an opportunity to give a defense. So Acts 7 describes the speech or this defense of Stephen. 
But we will see as we go through this, this that Stephen used the opportunity not just to defend himself, but to defend the gospel. And not only to defend the gospel, but to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news. And he turns the table on his accusers, and we'll see that they don't respond too well. And at the end of chapter 7, we see that Stephen gets stoned. I mean with stones, right? They, he basically was buried under a pile of stones. Such was the, the response to proclaiming the gospel. So really with that introduction overview, I'm sure you guys think that, man, this is, this is an awesome story. You know, and, and we can learn a lot from Stephen. Hopefully you, are, you realize that because there's a tremendous amount we can learn from Stephen as a character, but also from Stephen how he defended the gospel. How he loved people enough to call them to repentance. How more than anything else, he wanted the Sanhedrin, he wanted the Jewish leaders, in fact he wanted all the Jews to know what he knew and to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So that's kind of the big picture about uh, what we're going to be covering. Now I must just tell you that previously when I've read Acts and particularly chapter 7, I don't know if you guys have read chapter 7, it's a long chapter, it's about 70 verses, and it seems so long-winded. You know, it like carries on and on and you wonder why Stephen's taking so much trouble to explain the history of Israel and you know, 35 verses to cover Moses. But as we really get into this defense and the sermon, you know, I pray that you'll have the response I had, that this, this has become one of the most convicting, compelling passages of scripture to me. So bear with me, this is, uh, today we're going to cover 20, 29 verses. I'm not going to teach through it verse by verse. We're going to pick up the main themes. And I believe that's the way Luke wants us to read the speech. Right? Just to pick up the main points that Stephen is making. Um, but first, let's pray. Father God, we are always grateful to come together, God. We, we are grateful that you are faithful to your covenant promises. We, we think back to your, your promise to Abraham that you would that you would bless him with a family of all nations and that family would be a blessing to the world. I pray, Father, that we understand that. I pray, God, that you have called us into your family, not just for our own uh, salvation and, uh, and, and the blessings that, that we have in Christ, but that we are meant to be a blessing to the world. I pray, Father, that today will help equip us to be exactly that. I pray, Father, that we'll learn, that we'll be inspired by, by Stephen, and uh, not just the content of what he says, but the approach that he takes, and that we will feel inspired and equipped to defend the faith, God. Please be with me, Father. I pray, as always, that, yeah, that you will work through me in spite of my, my imperfections, God, my faults, and that the message will come across in a way that really hits the hearts of everybody here, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm sure by now you are in your Bibles in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Which charges that he blasphemed Moses, God, the temple and the law? By, by now we are quite familiar with the setting that is the Sanhedrin. It's a very intimidating setting. It is the top 70 Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They are heavily weighted in number towards the Sadducees who, who oversaw the, the workings of the temple. Many of them were corrupt. They were in the pocket of the Roman governor. And so they had a certain view of the temple that we will see Stephen challenges. He tells them that their worldview is wrong. They think 
incorrectly about the temple and their view of God is even much too small. Right, so that's where we are going with this, but I don't want to jump too far, far ahead of myself, right? And when, when you approach the, the Sanhedrin, Jewish law required them firstly to make sure that the person before them who was accused was very clear about the accusations against him. And then he was given an opportunity to respond, to defend himself. The Jewish law was fair in that regard. Okay, so there were, there were rules around how this court operated. Now, Stephen, of course, was familiar with the charges against him that he, he blasphemed or spoke badly about Moses, God, the temple, and the law. And we will see, as I said, as we go along, how Stephen just addresses each of these. Right, verse 2. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So we note here that, you know, Stephen starts his defense by finding common ground with the people before him. Now he starts by calling them his brothers and his fathers. He says, we are, we are from the same family. We are all Israelites. And he respects the Sanhedrin. He calls them my fathers, my elders. So there's a lesson in that for us as well, just how we defend the gospel with people. They have a common ancestry, Stephen tells them. We're all part of God's covenant family. He shows respect. Then he refers to our father Abraham. Once again, we're in this together. We are, we are family we are the nation of Israel. We have a common father, Abraham. But then he immediately gets into the scriptures. You know, the scriptures were dear to them. The history of Israel was dear to them. And the scriptures and the history of Israel was very dear to Stephen. So he bases his defense on telling the story of Israel. And he will point out that what was happening at the time had precedence. You know, had happened previously throughout the history of Israel. So the first uh, theme that I want to just highlight for us is that he connected by finding common ground with them. Now we, we discussed this at the equipping workshop two weeks ago, I think it was, Sunday afternoon, to be effective in our witness, to be effective in our defense of the gospel, to be effective in our evangelism. We need to find common ground with the people that we are reaching out to. Now, if we, have, if we meet somebody who claims to believe in the Bible, they read the Bible, then our response is, man, let's get into the Bible together. Let's look, at, let's look at some scriptures together and see if they answer those questions that you have. Now, we see Stephen doing that here. But if, if the person that we are defending our faith with doesn't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, it doesn't help to start with the Bible. You're right. Because they just don't believe what it says anyway. And Paul gives us a great example of that. We covered this in the workshop in Acts chapter 17. There Paul defended the gospel with a group of pagan philosophers, right, who believed in many, many gods. And they were into debating and checking if this guy was wise enough, if I should listen to him, how he spoke, etc. And Paul absolutely took up the challenge. He started off by speaking about creation. The philosophers love to consider different theories for creation. So he started with creation and then he addressed the fact that he, he knew that they, they believed that the most powerful gods couldn't be contained in buildings and temples. And they would have nodded and said, yep, Paul, we agree. 
And then he, he recalled seeing an inscription to an unknown God. Now there were hundreds, literally dozens or hundreds of gods. And then he latched onto that fact. And he said, you know, you've got, you worship an unknown God. I know who that unknown God is. So you can imagine them totally enthralled and listening to him intently. And, you know, the lesson for us is that when we share our faith, when we witness, when we defend what we believe, we need to find connection with the people. Amen? So, apart from the content we're going to look at, the approach of Stephen is really, um, he is a role model for us in terms of how he approaches his defense. We need to find ways to connect with people we're reaching out to. In verse 2, he refers to the God of glory. Let me ask you this. How many times does this description of God appear in the Bible, do you think? Apart from where Stephen uses it here. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Like a lot of times? A lot of times, okay. Sorry for setting you up, Keegan. It's used only once. And it's used in Psalm 29. This was the highest, most exalted name given to God. So right up front, Abraham, sorry, Stephen refers to the God of glory. They immediately would have thought, wow, not too many people use that term. It showed just how much he respected God. He used the highest, most exalted name of God. Now, do I blaspheme God? No ways. God is the God of glory. He's our God. He's the God of our father, Abraham, the God of glory. And we read in Psalm 29, you know, that God thunders over the mighty waters, that his voice is powerful and majestic. It breaks mighty trees. He makes lands and countries leap like a calf. He shakes the deserts. God is enthroned as king forever and he gives his people strength. And that's the gist of what David writes in the psalm. And obviously referencing a psalm by the great king David didn't do him any harm at all in terms of just you know, being accepted by them. They all respected King David as the most perfect king that they ever had, the man after God's own heart, out of whose line the Messiah would come. So Stephen at this stage has the guys, he's connected with them. They are enthralled by his approach and by his knowledge of the scriptures and especially by his reference to God as the God of glory. Now, do we understand God as the God of glory? Do we know God as this mighty, omniscient, omnipotent, amazing, amazing God who is far, far bigger than we can even begin to imagine? You know, God is named, he's referred to as many names in the Bible. Um, just to name a few, he's referred to as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He's referred to as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Jehovah Nissi, the God our banner. And the picture is of Jesus marching before us and we march into battle under the banner of Christ. He's known as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord of peace. Jehovah Ra, the Lord who shepherds. Jehovah Mekadeshem the Lord who makes holy. Jehovah Elyon, the Lord Most High. But Jehovah El Hakabot, the God of glory, is far, far greater and exalted than any of these names. Jehovah El Hakabot encaptures all of these other names. You know, Stephen worshipped the God of glory. There is no ways he was a blasphemer of God. He knew he knew God as the God of glory. And then he starts to sketch the history of Israel Starting with 
with Abraham. And he reminds them that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before him, he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. The point he's making here is that God is a God on the move. Not only that, but God, God appeared to Abraham way far, far away from the Holy Land, far north in Mesopotamia. And he appeared to Abraham centuries before the law and the temple were in place. He says, you can't limit God. God has been active, you know, throughout time. You, you can't limit God. God is not limited to any particular place or land. Not only that, but God is on the move. And like his calling to Abraham, God's people must be willing to leave and go. And he's implying, and I can imagine at this stage the Sanhedrin are starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. He's telling them that they are stuck in their ways. They are stuck in their traditions. You know, they're outdated rituals. He says it's time to move. You know, you're stuck. You know, God's people move with their God. You know, Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be willing to leave and go. Guys agree? We need to be willing to leave what we're familiar with. We need to be willing to give up any traditions and rituals and cultures that do not line up with the will of God, that are at odds with the values of God's kingdom, that do not reflect the mission and the person of Jesus. We need to be willing to leave and go. We can't settle into our comfort zones like the Jewish leaders had. You know, we shouldn't settle into church as an institution and church as ticking a box. You know, church is far more than that. You know, I love our Sunday service. To me, it's an awesome two hours of my week. But this isn't church. We don't go to church. We are the church. You know, 24-7. You know, let's not fall into the into the mistake that the Jewish leaders made that we that we're so attached to our traditions and the way we do things. As much as I love our traditions as a church, but we can never worship the traditions, which is what the Jewish leaders were doing. We must be willing to leave what we are comfortable with and go wherever God sends us. And it might not be a physical sending, but he will send us to places where we are uncomfortable. He will challenge our characters. He will challenge our worldview. He will fundamentally change our worldview which will affect our thoughts and our, and our behavior and our, and our whole life. It's uncomfortable leaving and going. But as disciples of Jesus, we leave and go. Verse 4, and we'll go a bit quicker now. Okay. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob 
and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. You know, so Stephen sketches, summarizes how Abraham was, was used by God and he focuses on the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision was like a badge worn by the people of God. And it was so central to the Jewish leaders' understanding of the law and of them being a people. And we will, say, we will see later on how, how Stephen challenges them about the fact that although they are circumcised physically, their minds are uncircumcised and their eyes are uncircumcised. So this is where he's going with this. And he reminds them that circumcision was introduced through Abraham. Once again, centuries, for, centuries before the law came into being, centuries before, long, long before God's people had settled in the promised land. So just to summarize Stephen's defense so far, he, he's connected with, the, with his accusers. He's using scripture to defend himself. He's respecting them while he's starting to challenge them to change their worldview. He tells them God has always been on the move. And then he says God is not limited to a particular land or place. And clearly he has Jerusalem and the temple in mind here. God is far, far bigger than that. We can't box God. We can't limit him to a building or a city or even, even a nation. And then Stephen moves on to the history of the age of the patriarchs. You now the twelve uh, sons of Jacob. Let's take up the reading in verse 9. Are you with me, church? Covering a lot today. Verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learnt about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Okay, without getting in all the, the detail here, Stephen highlights how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but how God used that. But God used, you know, this fact to, to place Joseph in, you know, the Pharaoh's court. He became the second most powerful person kind of the prime minister under the president, and he had authority over the whole of Egypt. And he used that position to store up food, not only to benefit Egypt and his family, but all the nations around them. And Pharaoh, being a smart businessman, charged exorbitant prices for the grain. Okay. So he blessed, in a sense, Egypt, really set Egypt up to receive you know, the family of Jacob, and make it a very prosperous country so that the family of Jacob would grow and become millions of Israelites before leading them through the waters of the Dead Sea. Amen. Awesome. So he's saying God is sovereign. God is in control. This is a massive project God is doing. You can't limit him just to the temple and to the law and your little rituals. Worldview is too small. But then he, he refers to, he highlights that God was with Joseph. And if you read the story of Joseph in Genesis 
That term comes up over and over again. Whenever he faced difficulty, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord appeared to Abraham far, far away. The Lord was with Joseph in Egypt. You can't confine God to a temple and to a place. Right? God, was, God is everywhere. He can't be confined. And then he refers to his brothers selling him, sold Joseph into slavery. His brothers first wanted to kill him, but then one of the brothers intervened and said, no, no, let's not kill him, let's rather just sell him into Egypt. And yeah, is a theme that will be repeated, we'll see it with Moses as well. And this is a really important theme that Stephen, Stephen touches in his speech. The point he's making and using Joseph as an example, he says that Israel had a history of rejecting their deliverers. Now God, God selected Joseph to deliver his people, to rescue them, to save them through this famine. But God's people, represented by the patriarchs at that time, the other 11 brothers, rejected him. You know, Joseph probably could have shared with them a little bit more wisely. Remember the dream that he had? You know, that you know, his brothers would worship him, kneel before him. Right? He could have been a bit more humble maybe, sharing that story. Right? Upset his brothers a little bit. But amen, God allowed it to happen for good reason. That Joseph ended up in Egypt. And if you look at the history of Israel, and Stephen, as we get into this, and next week in particular, we'll see a couple more examples. Israel had a history of rejecting people sent to them by God to either deliver them or as prophets. So once again, what is he implying? He says that, guys, you are repeating the error. You know, God has sent the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. You, know, you are just like your ancestors. You are rejecting you are rejecting the ultimate deliverer, rescuer, saviour, redeemer. You are rejecting Jesus. You are just like the patriarchs. Verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. God's sovereignty. Verse 18. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Once again, God working. God decided that, you know what, it's time, it's time for my people to leave and go. Let's put another Pharaoh there that's going to light the fire under them and make them a bit uncomfortable. They were getting too attached to this good life in Israel. Okay, so just God's sovereignty we see throughout the Bible, but oh, especially in the story of Joseph. Uh, verse 19, He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Now, the biggest part of Stephen's defense covers the story of Moses, as I mentioned. Now, remember, he was specifically accused of blaspheming Moses, speaking badly about Moses. But just the way he introduces Moses here makes it clear that he honors Moses. You know, he honors Moses. He respects Moses. He understands that Moses was this amazing deliverer sent by God. There is no way that he would blaspheme or speak, speak against Moses. He points out that he was no ordinary child. Your translation might read that he was beautiful to God. I don't think this means that he was a handsome guy. He might have been, right? 
he was beautiful to God. God sees the heart of people. Right? He had humility. He's described later on as being meek. I always wonder why, why Moses wrote that. Remember, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he said Moses was the meekest man on earth. Mm, not so sure, Moses. Amen. God inspired him to say that. We know, of course, that he's a, a prefigure of Jesus. Jesus is ultimately the most humble person. That's an aside. So he's, he was no ordinary child. And then he makes the point that he was educated, he was wise. The Egyptians were the thought leaders. The Egyptians were the cutting-edge scientists and technologists. They understood you know, geometry and medicine and astronomy like nobody else. And they taught all this stuff to Moses. You know, he was wise, he was clever. He knew as much as pretty much anybody in Egypt. So he honors Moses. You know, he was wise, he was educated, he was humble. And he was powerful in speech and action. You know, it's interesting that if you look at how he describes Moses and recounts the life and the story of Moses, if anything, he's a little bit biased towards the positive. Because Moses made a few mistakes as well. You know, in particular, remember when he got so angry, got impatient with his people and he broke the tablets with the commandments on and God said, you know, that's cool, you can still lead my people, but you're actually not going to enter the promised land now. You know, that's a part of Moses, that character's not so great, but he, he doesn't mention that. So he's, he's going out of his way to speak just positively about Moses. He honors Moses. There's no way he would blaspheme Moses. And by honoring Moses, by association, he honored the law. You couldn't separate Moses from the law. Verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And that's, of course, our sovereign God working. You know, he needed to go into the wilderness for a while. God then brought him back at the right time. So we see the cycle repeating again. You know, God's people rejecting the rescuer, the deliverer, the saviour sent by God to them. So he uses again the history of Israel, connecting with, you know, with the, his accusers on the scriptures. And clearly by now they're getting the message. What's this guy saying? Later on he's going to say it very bluntly. Man, you are just like your forefathers. You reject the deliverers, the deliverer, the deliverers, the prophets that God sends to you. You are just like your forefathers. You know, people are funny. Uh, maybe the word is prideful. But you hear sometimes stories of people who are in desperate need of rescue, but who refuse it when it's offered. And I, I, I remembered um, a time when I was a surf lifesaver in my days at varsity. Over weekends and during the holidays, I would sit on the beach and be a lifeguard. And one weekend I was on duty with my, my squad at King's Beach and the wind was blowing pretty hard. There was, the sea was rough 
there was a rip current. So what we do is we talk and we decide to demarcate a swimming area that's the safest. Okay, so you make it small usually and you know that you're going to have to focus today because things can go horribly wrong here. So we did that and, you know, we'd be there with the whistles and blow and encourage people, kind of shepherd, herd people together. And there's this one guy came down there and he swam off to the right, uh, you know, outside of the swimming area. He um, started swimming a bit too far out to sea. So I went down there, sort of knee deep, waist deep, and I blew my whistle really hard to encourage him to come back. He saw me, but he decided, I can handle this, you know. So he kept on swimming out, and as much as we tried to get his attention, he just, he just didn't listen. So eventually one of the other, one of the, uh, my squad members, teammates on the day, uh, swam out to him. You know, you have the, the sort of the life raft, you strap it around you, and then there's a, a rope, and then a boy. When you rescue someone, you don't want to grab them. Both of you might drown. So you swim it out, and then you throw the boy to them, and they're supposed to swim back with it. So he's a good swimmer, the best swimmer. He swam out, and I saw them, and it took a while. And afterwards, he told me that this guy just didn't want to take, didn't want to take the boy. And eventually, he convi- convinced him to, because I think by now this guy realized that he actually was struggling to swim back on his own. And the rip current was taking him further and further out. So eventually when they come back to shore, um, it was amazing. This guy didn't even appear grateful. <laughs> it was, you know, I don't know if he was embarrassed that he needed to be rescued. Maybe he didn't want to be rescued, I don't know. But he just didn't appear grateful. Strange. You know, some people just don't see their need for rescue. And it's spiritually true also. You know, so many people nowadays are no better than the Israelites. Now, throughout the history of Israel, they rejected the rescuers that God put in their lives. So many people nowadays don't realize their need for rescue. And if they do, they think they can rescue themselves. Right? I'm in charge of my life. I'm sure I can figure this out. I don't need a rescuer. Can you guys relate? You know, I was like that for seven years. I knew I needed a rescuer, but I thought I could be that rescuer. I could sort out my life. You guys know my story, most of you. I took seven years to finally grab the boy that was thrown to me. Now the gospel. Now I believe many, many of you here might be very aware that you need rescue. You need rescue from your state of hopelessness that you feel, your state of helplessness, or state of just not coping with life. You might know that you're not right with God, but you don't know what to do about it, or maybe you're too proud, you think you're going to sort it out yourself. You know, God has sent a rescuer. His name is Jesus. And he uses his church, his family, to rescue people. We offer the rescuer to people, the deliverer, the redeemer, the saviour, the only real, true, authentic saviour, you know, Jesus Christ. Now, why would you not accept, you know, the life raft thrown to you. Why wouldn't you accept that? What's holding you back? You know, if anything is holding you back, what's holding you back from just humbly accepting the rescuer, the rescue that God offers us, offers you and me through his son, Jesus? You know, we'll end there today. Um, I'm going to pray to help us prepare for the communion. Uh, which we'll take together in a few minutes. Father God, as Paul wrote um, to the Colossian church, 
As disciples of Jesus, we have been rescued from the power of darkness. We have been brought into the glorious kingdom of the Son you love. Those of us who have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus have been rescued. In Christ we have redemption and we have the forgiveness of sin. Jesus, we thank you for being our saviour. We thank you for being our rescuer. We are incapable of rescuing ourselves. We are fully aware of that. We need you, Jesus. I thank you, God, for the the lessons that we can learn from your scriptures, that we can learn from the, the successes, but we can also learn from the mistakes. And Father, there is so much we can learn from the mistakes that Israel made over and over again, God. They rejected the deliverers that you sent them. And then the, the vast majority of them rejected Jesus, you know, especially the, the leaders that accused Stephen. They rejected the Messiah, the ultimate and supreme rescuer. I pray, Father, that everybody here this morning either has accepted or will accept the rescue that Jesus provided, that Jesus provides through taking our sin upon himself, dying on our behalf and defeating our common, our common and ultimate enemy, death. Father, I pray that you'll please expose any pride in our hearts. Give us the humility, Father, to graciously accept the deliverance that only that Jesus and only Jesus can provide. Father, help us also to be a people on the move, as you are on the move. As Jesus was crucified outside the city, we read that he picked up his cross and he walked outside the city. Let us move beyond our comfort zones. Stretch us, Holy Spirit, as we take up our cross and follow Jesus outside um, our city of, of comfort and familiarity. I pray, God, as we, as we take the short walk to the communion table this morning, that we will see that as symbolic of getting up and moving and being challenged out of our comfort zones to follow the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Thank you, Father. Jesus' name I pray. Amen.